0: Welcome to the Mavericks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Saroy, and this is the place to be to get unstuck, unleash your superpowers, and create a world that works for all. On this podcast, we speak to Mavericks who inspire us to get the insight and wisdom from their story to help give you the clarity, confidence, and courage that you need to make your mark on the world. This week, our guest is one of my biggest influences, Michael Bungay Stania. Michael is the founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons, a company best known for teaching busy managers effective 10-minute coaching so they can build stronger teams and get better results. Michael's also written several books, including Do Great Work, End Malaria with Seth Godin, and his latest, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Coaching Habit. This has sold nearly a quarter of a million copies, and I have to say that i personally given away about 25 copies, as it's just the most accessible book on coaching out there. More than that, Michael is just very funny and very human, hugely insightful and incredibly intelligent and just a genius at what he does so let's get to it so hi mavericks i'm really pleased to have michael Stania on the uh, on the line with me today hi michael how are you
1: I'm good, although I, my name's a little tricky because it's actually Michael Bungaystania. It's like a double-barreled name that doesn't have a hyphen in it, so it all gets a bit confusing. But yeah, Michael Bungaystania, because when I got married, I combined my wife's name with mine. Oh,
0: okay. Okay. Well, there you go. I'm off to off to a really bad start already. <laughs>
1: oh, um, no. no, no. no that's, a, that's a better start than I've been called Michael Banging Spaniel. That's the <laughs> worst. Combination of my name, so calling me Michael Stanier, which was in fact my original name before I got married, that's, that's, that's pleasantly nostalgic.
0: I love that, I love that. The reason why we have Michael Bungay uh, Stanier on here is I've been following Michael's work for about nine years and if we were to define a maverick as a true-hearted, uh, authentic person unleashing their superpowers and making their impact in the world, and for me, Michael is a shining, gleam, gleaming example of that um so hence why we why we even invite you on michael so i just really want to jump in i know your work really well but why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and a little bit about your maverick story up to this point in time let's get started
1: well I'll, I'll sketch out kind of the brief bio so people you, we have a sense of where to go and then we may if you want we can kind of double click on anything that takes your fancy and kind of dive into it So, I'm, a, I'm, I'm australian by birth um Grew up, happy family, uh, went to university, did a law degree and a literature arts degree there. Um, it start, the wheel started to fall off a little bit. I finished my law degree being sued by one of my law lecturers for defamation. So that was kind oh, of okay. strongly pointing that I probably shouldn't become a lawyer. Um, And in fact, I was saved mostly from that fate by becoming a Rhodes Scholar, which means I got to travel to England, studied in Oxford for a couple of years where I did a master's degree in literature. Okay. Basically, it saved me from becoming a lawyer. It's awesome. But even more importantly, I met my Canadian wife there. We've been together for 25 years now. Congratulations. Um, So I'm now in England. I was planning on going back to Australia, but I'd met Marcella, so that plan went out the window. So I got my first ever job, my first kind of full-time grown-up job. And I happened to stumble into this company called What If, and What If is an innovation company uh, Mm. based in uh, London originally. I think they've gone global or partly global or something now. Um, But I spent five or six years in the world of innovation, so trying to invent products and services for companies and also moving into the world of creativity training, helping companies become more innovative. Mm. And it was a real spark for me, a reminder of, look, I'm, I'm not that interested, honestly, in inventing another range of soup for Heinz. I mean, there's only so much soup one can have in the world. But I am great. interested in what it takes to have a good organization. So I left that company and joined a small change management organization. It's all about how do we make organizations change and evolve to become better places to work. And with them, we moved from London to Boston um, and worked for two or three years in Boston, honestly not being very successful. we as a, as a collective, we underestimated what it would take to arrive in a new country where we knew nobody and try and set up a business. But we struggled along for a few years and I worked there. And then about 15 years ago, I moved to Canada and um, shortly after moving to Canada, set up Um, box of crayons and so we literally last week celebrated our 15th birthday at box of crayons which is amazing
0: that's great
1: yeah it's really surprising and you know when i started uh box of cranes because I know Chris Shaw right at the start of, of beginning the Mavericks unlimited journey. So it's mm. a certain amount of what the heck's going on here. Um, certainly that was true for me. I was like, I have no idea what I am doing. So I, my business plan was to say yes to anything. You know, as as it had a pulse and a wallet, I'm pretty much going to say yes to it. Um, <laughs> I can it, it didn't even really need a pulse if I was being honest about it. As long as there was you know, somebody would pay me to do something, but Over the years, we've gradually figured out what we are best at, or at least what we want to, what impact we want to have on the world. Mm. And so now Box of Crayons is a training company, and we have a very specific focus. We teach 10-minute coaching, so busy managers can build stronger teams and get better results. So along the way, I've written, I think, four or five books, five books, the most recent is called The Coaching Habit. Uh, it's been out just over a year now, about a year and a quarter. It's been this amazing success. I'm, you'll hear the surprise in my own voice, but we've, <laughs> it's close to a quarter million copies being sold of the book now, which is super that's exciting. Incredible. Uh, it is incredible. it's um, incredible. Not least because uh, I mean for people who are writers out there and know the sting of rejection from publishers it got turned down by my publisher so I ended up self-publishing it. and it's still right, right. So that kind of makes me feel smug as well as successful. <laughs> um, but I have another book that's well known called Do More Great Work which is um, more focused on how do you find the time and the space and the courage to do more of the work that has impact and the work that has meaning to you? And how do you manage the rest of that stuff that crowds into your life? Um, and I guess I'd mention one other book, which I did about six years ago now called End Malaria. I did that in conjunction with Seth Godin, wow. uh, who some people know as a, a marketing blogger and all the money raised by the book not just the profit but all the money raised from the book went to Malaria No More and we raised four hundred thousand dollars for Malaria No More so that was a really cool project and there we go that's that's a kind of a a rapid fire bio I kind of left out most of the stumbling around making mistakes not sounding what I'm doing I made it sound like I was actually cognizant and competent and smart and driven and focused and visionary the whole time which is clearly not true but it, it, you know I, when, when I, people give you your story they're always telling you the highlights <laughs> you've always got to listen with a bit of a sceptical ear. Uh,
0: well one, one of the things I, lo- I love, my, th- thank you for that and there, believe me there are lo- loads of places I want to double click as it were um, but you know one of the things that always comes across to me about you is that uh, you are quite transparent about the fact that you know there are sort of you know the role that chance has played or you know sometimes things have almost happened accidentally or um, but what's clear is that you are a, a, a super smart guy as it were. So I'm just kind of curious what has been your kind of approach and you, you're also quite, um, quite a humble guy. You come across as quite a humble guy. So I'm, I'm in fact,
1: of, possibly the best humble guy you've ever met. That's how humble I am.
0: <laughs> I love <that. laughs> What? So what would you say, let's start off with a meta question then. What would you say your, your kind of approach to, to life is and, and what's your, your kind of philosophy behind how you live your life?
1: Ah, So, a nice, nice, easy, small question to yeah, start nice with. Yeah, nice, easy, small but, one, just to start.
0: Appreciate that. Um,
1: so, what is my approach to life? Well, the, the starting point is life is short and this is it. <laughs> so, I actually have on my startup screen of my computer, I actually have my statistical death date, September 17th, 2042. Um, Kevin Kelly, who's a great writer, one of the founders of Wired Magazine, done a bunch of other things, has a great article on um, how to calculate your own death date. And his insight was that you can probably do five major, or sorry, one major project every five years. And so uh, a starting point for me is, look, I I get one crack at this. I'm an atheist, so I'm kind of like, I'm here and then I'm dead. Um, So so you may as well have a go at stuff. The second kind of thread, it'd be wrong to call it a philosophy because that would make it sound like I've thought this through, but here's a (laughs) collection of half-assed thinking that I've got. Um, The second piece is, and this struck me when I was actually visiting Istanbul for the first time. Mm. And I went to the, I think it's called the Tokai Palace, so one of the great uh, homes of the, the rulers of, uh, of Istanbul and, and the Ottoman Empire. Mm. And I, as I was wandering along in one of the museum rooms, I, I saw these amazing bowls, and they were Ming Dynasty. And somehow, these bowls had survived the trek from inner China to Turkey. And then had managed to hang around for, I don't know, what, five, 600 years without being broken or thrown out or destroyed in war or invasion or any of that. So I'm like, it's amazing that some potter five or 600 years ago created this thing and it's still something that I can see and admire. Wow! And then I, I wandered into town and kind of was walking along a street and there was this, this kind of buried a little bit, this, this sort of worn down piece of rock. So I was curious to it and it turned out that this had originally been the marker that marked the center of the Ottoman empire, one of the great empires. And of course the empire has fallen. The, this is this big, you know, this stone going, we're the best empire ever it's crumbled and worn away. And I was just struck by the fact that you just have no idea what's going to last or isn't going to last. And odds are what you do doesn't matter that much. And I don't know, Chris, you know, then there's a whole bunch of other things. I don't know if this is a philosophy or just a tactic or what it is, but you know, um, a degree of persistence really helps. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that's a whole true. bunch of the success that I've had has been the fact that, you know, I've, I, after I've sent my third email and I still haven't heard from anybody, I send a fourth email going, Hey, I still haven't heard from you. Should I keep stalking you or should I stop? Anyway, let me know one way or the other. And, you know that's been part of the the success that who said this eighty uh, Woody Allen, I think eighty percent of success is just showing up yeah there's a, you know, there's some truth to that which is like keep showing up, keep working hard, keep trying to figure out what's the work that has impact and make feels meaningful for you. Keep doing that, and probably some good stuff will come and i'll say one other thing, Chris, which is yeah. to say, I say all that through the having the good luck to be in a position of privilege. And by privilege, I mean, I am a six foot two white, straight, overeducated man. And honestly, that gives me such a uh, you know, that gives me a 40 meter head start in this hundred meter race right. so that to a degree I'm like, if I'm not having some success, what the hell am I doing?
0: And I, and I totally hear that. But what I also hear in that is humility piece that comes in. It's not, you know, there are a lot of people I speak to, a lot of leaders I speak to who, you know, have the ego to go with it. And that is. I kind of I, of... know,
1: Chris, I, I'm going to say, I don't, I, I mean, I don't see it as humility I just see it as I am better educated perhaps around just how random success is. (laughs) I mean, mean, it's like, I'm not trying to be that kind of humility going, no, no, I'm obviously I'm brilliant, but you know, I was lucky. I'm like, no, I was lucky. (laughs) I got lucky. Hey, I worked hard and I am clever and I do, and I do that, but I got a bunch of lucky breaks and, um, Uh, I've just read enough, you know, uh, behavioral economics and psychology to understand that we tend to, you know, ascribe all our successes down to our own talents and our bad luck down to the world against us. And it's really helpful to go into this world going, I have free will and I get to make choices and I get to drive my destiny. But it's also really helpful to hold the same counter belief at the same time, which is, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of good luck going on here. <laughs> and it's yeah, 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 yeah. like, who knows what the hell is going to happen?
0: I just want to pick up on the, the, the persistence point for a second. I was reading, uh, you wrote uh, an article around the the release of um, The Coaching Habit for Ramit Seti. That's right. Uh, the, uh, just a great article, believing lots of learnings in that. Um, but, you know... <laughs> Given, given this kind of 15-year journey you've had with BoxCraft, you said a lot of it's been scrappling around and, you know, it's not been as elegant as maybe, you know, it appears on the surface. How? What do you do to keep going when when the going gets tough, as it were? What's, what's the way that you kind of work your way through the messy middle, as it were?
1: yeah. Well, I think it's a combination of things. The first is there's one part of me that is quite conservative. So I've never really taken a risk where I'm like and and if this goes wrong I lose it all. I'm like if this goes wrong then I I understand what's at risk and I can afford to lose it. Mm. So, you know, publishing the coaching habit as an example. So, do more great work got picked up by a New York publisher called workman that's very exciting. Um, I spent three years trying to pitch The Coaching Habit in various forms to them. They keep kept turning me down. It's very depressing. Um, <laughs> sure. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to self-publish The Coaching Habit. How much is that going to cost me? It's going to cost me if I go flat out, full on, you know, hold nothing back. Overinvest rather than underinvest, it's going to cost me somewhere between thirty dollars and $50,000. So a huge amount of money, okay? Absolutely. But part of me is calculating okay, we make our money selling training programs. Um, if some of these book sales turn into increased sales of our training programs, then I have a way of, of earning back that money. Yes. Secondly, I am willing to lose $50,000 on this. Cause I think the book is worth it. I think I've written a good enough book. I think I can put something out there, but if I write the best book I can market it in the best way I can, and it sells exactly seven copies, I'm going to go, as long as I did all I could to, to, to have a go at that, then I can walk away proud and I'm comfortable knowing that I can afford to lose that amount of money I invested in it. Mm. So that, that's part of it, which is around just going, um, I, I know what's at, I try and figure out what's at risk and I make sure that I'm willing to lose that before I, I have a go at it. Yeah. The, the second thing is, um, and this is the flip side of that, that what we're talking about just before is I go, if it goes wrong, it is rarely just about me. It's really a personal failure. It's a failure of timing or circumstance or process or just, you know, bad luck. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you're like, ah, oh, that didn't work. Um, and so I don't tend to take things overly personally when I fail. I go, oh, that's just, you know, that didn't work. Um, so we, let's not do that idea again, or at least let's not do it again for a while until we figure out, do we have any guesses why this may not have worked?
0: Right. You've, um, you've obviously been through certain, certain, some ups and downs in, in all the, these things, and you've got some great things in place there. I'm just wondering, you because know, we, we have a lot of our, our followers, a lot of our, our mavericks are people who are starting out doing their own um, their own projects, that kind of stuff, mm. and inevitably stuff gets in the way. Inevitably yeah. stuff gets in the way. So I'm just curious for, for you, what's, what's kind of an example of a big obstacle that's got in your way that you've faced uh, through your journey and how did you overcome
1: it? You know, the, the, recur, the the answer that is the recurring answer is the biggest obstacle often tends to be just my own anxiety about tackling projects that matter. Okay. So in, in Do More Great Work, which I know you've read, uh, mm. the basic premise, the the sort of model that underlies it is saying everything you do falls into one of these three different buckets, bad work, good work, or great work. And bad work is kind of soul sucking waste of time work. Good work is your job description. And you know, everybody has a job description of some sort, whether you're in a big company, whether you're starting your own startup, whether you're a solopreneur, whether you're a stay at home parent, you kind of have a job description. It's the day to day stuff that gets things done. And then great work is the work that has more impact and has more meaning. So it's kind of got that double element to it. Impact means it makes a difference in the world Mm -hmm. and meaning means it lights up something in you. It's work that you care about. Yes. And here's the thing. Most of us, all of us, I think have a hunger to do more great work. We all look, we've all done it in the past. You know, it's why you started Mavericks unlimited, right? It's like, you're like, I want to do the stuff that lights me up. That gets me excited. That feels like it makes a difference in this world and at the same time when we are doing great work we step out to the edge of our own level of confidence and confidence and experience so there's part of us going this is super exciting and then there's our amygdala lizard brain going what Absolutely. are you doing you are an idiot we hate <laughs> uncertainty <laughs> and this is uncertainty and so for instance, when I, my first book was a book called Get Unstuck and Get Going. came out about, gosh, I don't know, 12 years ago now. It's yeah. like a self-coaching book. It's another book I self-published because it's, it's slightly complicated. It's, it's like one of those adult flip books where you've got you know, a ballerina's head and a scuba diver's
0: body <laughs> and a gardener's I leg. And you yeah. flick
1: it around to combine questions in different ways. And when I was writing that, I hired myself a coach And I said to L.A., I said, L.A., your job is to keep me writing because I'm going to find any excuse I can not to write this book. You know, I'm going to, you know, early days for for Box of Crayons, so I'm like, I'm really hustling to try and find a client, find work to figure out what I'm doing. All of that feels more urgent than writing a book. I knew that writing a book was playing to a longer game and doing more great work. So LA's job was to stop me colluding with myself to avoid doing the work that mattered. You know, there's a there's a degree to which you look at your life and you're like, what can I control? What can I influence? Turns out we can control barely anything. (laughs) You can control (laughs) the choices we make. You know, that's it, how we respond, where we put our time and our attention. Um and If you're as weak-willed as I am, because I am easily distracted, um, what I've learned is me just gritting my teeth and clenching my buttocks and going, I'm going to make this work, almost never works. I've got to set up structures to help me avoid the temptations that I will otherwise fall for. So, uh, you know, hiring a coach helped me writing that, that first book for sure. I,
0: I, I, get, I guess I, I want to pick up on the the do more great work thing and that kind of mm-hmm. how do you do more great work as well. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the people we work with and, you know, uh, a lot of, there are a lot of creatives out there, for example, who want to do great creative work. That's, that's their thing. But of yeah. course, you know, there's the dedication to their craft, but then there's the reality of paying the bills as well. Yep. And so, so there is that thing of balancing survival and thrive, if if you like. What yeah. kind of advice would you give to to that kind of person who wants to do more great work, but they're kind of holding themselves back because they've quote unquote got to pay the bills or whatever? Yeah. Else? Well,
1: I, I would say you do have to pay the bills. Um, I'm not one of those people that says no, give it all up and just launch your dream thing because you have wind beneath your wings and you will fly. <laughs> like mostly you just plummet like a dead weight, you know, Icarus style. And you actually don't want that. There's a couple of things probably going on. One of them is often you actually haven't figured out how much money you need. Um, and if you haven't sat down and gone, all right, what, what, what is the nut that I need to earn before I can go, I've got what I need for now. And that every other Piece of time I can dedicate to doing this great work that I've got going. And then you can ask yourself, and what if I could get by on less? You know, what's the minimum that I need to kind of make this work? And then for me, you know, my friend Pam Slim, who wrote a book called Escape from Cubicle Nation and another one called Body of Work, Mm. she introduced to me the idea of a side hustle. Right, right. Part of of the challenge around doing more great work or kind of setting off on your own is what you think is the thing you're going to enjoy doing is often not the thing you actually enjoy doing. You know, case in point for me, when I launched Box of Crayons, I assumed I was going to become a coach, life coach, executive coach, I wasn't sure, but it was going to be almost entirely coaching. After about a year of that, turns out I don't like coaching that much. I I love teaching people to coach. I love occasionally coaching people or being more coach like with people, but having a practice of 20 to 25 clients who I talk to every two weeks turned out to make me feel bored and lonely and isolated. And I didn't get to show off enough. And it just turned out not to be a thing that lit me up as much as I thought it would. Mm. So I had to, you know, I killed that off for me. I closed my practice down and, It's a classic, you know, Silicon Valley would say, you've got to pivot because whatever your initial business plan is, that's not going to be your business. (laughs) I don't know if you've experienced that with Mavericks Unlimited at all, but my guess is when you sat down with your partners and went, we think we're going to do this. That's not exactly what you're now doing.
0: It's definitely morphed. I, w- I would definitely agree with you there. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny that you, uh, that you mentioned pivot because that is where a lot of our focus is with the people we work with. So yeah. you, you're, you're not wrong there.
1: And, and then the other thing to say is you can't really think your way through this. I mean, you can do some work around that. One of the exercises in Do More Great Work, for instance, is to think back on the peak moments of your life, particularly your working life. Tell yourself the story of those peak moments and then figure out what do those stories tell you about what's important to you? Mm. Because underlying the stories are the values, the things that go, look what lights up in you when you have an opportunity like that. And what you're uncovering are, kind of not the the specifics but the principles you know you may tell yourself that, like for instance one of the stories i tell myself often is 20 uh, 30 years ago i was uh 17 a teacher working in my gap year in the uk language in my gap year mm-hmm. I, I worked as a teacher in, in a school in england in Berkhamsted. In oh Hartford. really
0: okay yeah i know Berkhamsted. yeah
1: and um there's this moment where a kid throws a chair through a window and I'm like, you know, I'm only 17, this kid's 13, but I'm now teaching him. And there's a chair through the window and it's basically chaos. And it stands out as a great work moment for me because calming myself down and calming the kids down and getting that under control and working with these kids. It was, it, it speaks to values that matter to me, values that I care about. Sure. So, What's useful wow. if you're one of these people is to go, "So what are my drivers? What are my values? What do I care about? What does my past tell me about what my future might be?" Oh. But then to know that whilst you're probably getting really good guidance there, what you, how you actually translate those values into the thing, you know the, the thing you create, the way you earn money it may not be right the first time or the first two times. So you might want to do it as a side hustle where you're not saying, okay, I'm launching this thing. Never really done it before, but I'm really hoping I can support my family on this. Oh my God, can you feel the anxiety? <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, another, another metaphor for this comes from, Ah, uh, what's his name? The guy who wrote From Good to Great. Uh, Jim Collins. Jim Collins, yes. He's written about seven books, all that have titles that are almost exactly the same. Absolutely, hasn't he just? So it's a little confusing. And there's been some interesting stuff going. Basically, his research his research isn't as good as he thinks it is. But you, you have to say the man has a gift for metaphor. He's outstanding at that. Absolutely. And one of the ways he talks about strategy is about bullets and cannonballs. Mm. He says, look, when you're trying to figure it out, what you want to do is fire lots of bullets because bullets are low risk, low cost. They're kind of beta testing because what you're trying to find out is what the real target actually is. Mm. When you figure out what the real target is, then you fire the cannonball. And his point is that for most of us, we either fire the cannonball too soon you know, we go, this is it. I've had yep. the idea. I've done no research. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if anybody's going to buy it. I don't know if I like doing it, but I'm, I'm all in. So too soon. Or they never have the courage to fire the cannonball. You know, they're like, I think this is the target. but you know, why don't I fire another bullet instead of a cannonball? And so right. with, with box of crayons, what we're trying to do is fire the cannonball. So you, you heard what I said about what we did. We yep. teach 10-minute coaching so managers can build stronger teams and get better results. It's really specific. So when people call me up and say, Michael, can you do team building? I go, no. They go, Michael, can you do leadership? I go, we don't do that. They go, Michael, can you do strategy or creativity? I go, no, we don't do that. And the truth is I know how to teach all of that. Yes, I, could, I could whip up a course. I could do something awesome. I know that if you're in front of a flip chart and you're holding the pen, everybody assumes you know stuff. So I'd hold a pen in front of a flip chart and I'd be authoritative. <laughs> um, but I say no to that because I'm like, I'm firing a cannonball here so I don't have time for more bullets.
0: And I think that what I really hear there is there's something there about courage convictions as well, isn't there? It's like, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. And more to the point, you know, there's so much noise out there. This is, this is what I'm about to cut through all of that noise.
1: And so that, that, that's a slightly different part of the process is, you know, it's one thing to figure out what you want to do. Then it's a marketing piece, which is like, so how am I different? Mm. Because the truth is there is a bazillion people who've all had the same basic idea as you have. Yep. For instance... Is Mavericks Unlimited the first firm that's really thought about bringing powerful coaching to the world of creative business? The answer would be no. (laughs) It's like there's been companies doing that for 20 years. So how are you different from the other people? And you know, lots of people go, well, we have outstanding people. And I'm like, of course you do. And actually just so you know, so does every other firm that does this. They they all have outstanding people. Of course. And they're like, yeah, but we have experience in the creative industries. And I'm like, yeah, of course. So actually surprisingly, so so does every other firm. So now you've got to go, so how are we different? And now you start finding language to go, this is what makes us different from the other people. So for us built into our tagline, 10 minute coaching, there's actually a point of difference right there. And that's right. what people, but, but there's no point in trying to find your point of difference. If a, you've come up with an idea that nobody wants to buy, or you come up with an idea that you actually don't like doing very much.
0: I want to kind of flip to one, one of your other, your other books here, because, but kind of connected as it were. Uh, and that's end malaria, because I know a lot, of, a lot of end malaria, as well as having an impact on the world, is about how you make impact in the world.
1: Right, right.
0: As it were, and actually I was having a conversation this morning with a lady who, she's, she, her whole thing is about making homelessness intolerable to the world, so that actually people, there is no homelessness anymore. And one of the things we were talking about was uh, how she can make impact. I'm just wondering from your point of view, and obviously the, the book is all about that, but if you were to kind of give one or two tips to people who maybe want to make a social impact on the world or, you know, change that, the world in a social way, what would, what would you kind of say to them as some of, some of the things that they should think about?
1: So maybe I can talk about the process behind End Malaria and what I'm hoping people will hear are the principles, not the tactics, Yeah, because the tactics are just the things I did. But maybe my way of thinking is useful for people to pull out of here. So the starting point for End Malaria was I published Do More Great Work in 2010 Mm. and gone, this is awesome. I'm so excited to have a book by a New York publisher out in the world. And um, and then I suddenly realized that in the book, um, I say, the thing you want to do is you know start a great work project something that really focuses your effort your energy your resources so that your attempts to do great work aren't scattered but have a a real critical mass I'm like Mm. that's such a good idea maybe I should follow my own advice rather than just giving it to everybody else I'm like okay well (laughs) what, what would it what would a great work project look like for me so I tried to figure out a number of different things. First of all, I tried to figure out what's the scale at which I want to operate. And for me, and this is just for me, so people listening in will have different scales of where they want to operate, but I was like, I want to see if I can have a global impact. And where that took me to was um, the millennial, the U- United Nations Millennial Goals. And so I read through the millennial goals about what they're trying to do. And one of them was to eradicate malaria. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. Then I was like, what, what assets do I have? I mean, what can I do? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what can I do? Well, I can write books. I have now have two or three books under my belt. So I kind of know how to write a book and I can put a book together. I also said to myself, I have lots of weak links with people who are vaguely impressive. You know, I don't know them particularly well, but I've invited a lot of people into my podcast, which had been going for seven or eight years. And so, um, as I, I, I have a track record of not being daunted into reaching out to variously famous people and going, can you participate in this in some way? Mm. And I was like, um, and I have a publisher, Workman. So I was like, this is fantastic. And I'd been inspired, and I had some seeds of inspiration. Seth Godin had written this e-book, which was a way of trying to uh, get a whole bunch of people to contribute to an ebook, and it generated uh, kind of sign-ups and spread the word about something. I thought that was pretty interesting. Hmm. And um, I, I have been... A, I was going to say a student of business models, which is slightly overstating it, but I'm always curious as to how people get out in the world. Yeah. and I got the idea of, and maybe this is from something like Tom's around, what if you could say buy a book, save a life or buy a book, buy a, a mosquito net? Because one of the things that i would worked out from the millennial goals is the cheapest unit of change was 10 bucks because 10 bucks bought a mosquito net. And that was basically the cheapest way of making something work so that when people my, my insight was i don't want to have people go hey your donation goes towards a large amorphous project i wanted people yeah. to go hey my donation goes to actually a very specific thing by buying this book i provide a net to a family yes so yeah, I get that. I'm like, oh, it's all coming together. And I went and talked to, to workmen about it. And Peter workman was still alive, the founder of workman. And he's like, sure, we'll support this. We'll print 10,000 copies of the book for you at our expense. And I was like, this is amazing. But then it just got really hard because publishing is such a, I'm going to say arcane industry mm. that I couldn't work out how to extract the money or even how much money each book would earn. So okay. I was like, It's a really good idea, but I can't. I can't do it, so I put it aside. And then Peter Workman, or actually the editor of of Workman at the time, which wasn't Peter, somebody else, called me up and went, "Hey, Seth Godin's doing this thing. He's publishing books in partnership with Amazon. That might be a fit for your malaria book." So I happened to know Seth Godin. How did I know Seth Godin? I just started writing to him. I asked him to write a blurb for my first book. I I wrote him a note every now and then going, I liked your article or have you read this book? So another weak link, I didn't know him particularly well. I'd never met him, but I pitched him the End Malaria book and I'd done some of the work. Like I had seven or eight of the essays already ready to go. And he's like, good, we're all in. And because of the nature of his relationship in publishing, it meant that we could give not just the profit, but actually all the money because we got Amazon to, to, to cover all the costs for everything and all the people who wrote did it for free and I edited it for free. So, you know, the principles around this, it's like, it's not about the book or malaria or anything. It's like, what assets do you have? What scale do you want to play at? What impact can you make in the world? Who can you lean into and ask for help? And, those are the things for me. And, you know, is there something that already exists that you can contribute to rather than starting something up? Right. You know, those are the principles that, that occur to me around how do I think about what I want to do in this world?
0: I, I love that. And I, th- I think it's great that you pull out the principles. I think that's one thing I would say that hallmarks all of your work. It's there are very, very practical, tactical things, but it's the principles you extract. I think that for me is why The Coaching Habit is such a powerful book. Right. Because it's, it's got the tangible stuff there, but you it, you communicate the principles so succinctly and so clearly. Thank you. You're very welcome. So just let, let, let's kind of just touch on the, the Coaching Habit for a minute. And actually, I want to dive into something quite specific. You know, one of, one of the realities of this, this world is that people tend to be very overwhelmed, tend to have far too much to do and not enough time and all that and one of the the tools i like most from from that is the strategic question could you explain to us a little bit more about what you, what the strategic question is yeah and, and and how you would use it to kind of cut through some of that overwhelm
1: yeah so in in the coaching habit book and it's really written for busy managers busy leaders not really trying to turn anybody into a coach but really just trying to have see show people how they can be more coach-like and honestly being more coach-like when it boils down to it is can you stay curious a little bit longer can you rush to action and advice giving just a little bit more slowly because it turns out that most of us are advice giving maniacs and sure. in the book there's just seven questions and I you know I curated this really carefully played around with it I had five questions and I had 165 questions and 11 questions and so I finally came down to I think these are the seven questions And you're right, the strategic question is one of them. And it is simply this. The question goes like this. If I'm saying yes to this, what must I say no to? Because there's all sorts of fancy definitions for strategy. But I think I'll give people two kind of connected to what we've been talking about. One definition of strategy is the optimum combination of good work and great work in your business and in your life. A second one is just thinking about great strategy shows up as the stuff you say no to that you still kind of want to do, but you still say no to it anyway. So, you know, example is like when people call up and go, Michael, come and do this great speech on leadership. We'll pay you money. I'm like, oh, I could do that. And it's just a short flight and it's just leadership. I can talk about leadership. I can come up with something. But I'm like, no, our focus is, our our mission is coaching in 10 minutes all that. Yep. So you get to say no to that. So it really forces the opportunity cost to become apparent. Um, mm. And, you know, to the people who go, that you were talking about earlier, who are like, I want to start something. I want to start a side hustle. Well, like, if you're going to say yes to that, what must you say no to, to make that real? Because if you're like most people, you have no spare capacity. Mm. so if you want to add something you must create the space for it and you've probably got a bunch of things that are relatively easier to say no to so say no to those right away and then you've got a bunch of things that are much harder to say no to so say no to those right away as well you know pluck up the courage to say a bold no so that your yes actually has some meaning to it
0: and what i really love is as you mentioned with box of crayons it's like saying to to anything outside of those kind of 10 minute coaching, um, conversations. Yep. Um, you're, you're, that's really walking your talk as it were, which I just, I just, I try,
1: I, I, I mean, I, I try and walk my talk. I am of course like everybody, slightly (laughs) hypocritical about it. So don't be believing at the moment that I live a life of pure clarity and strong nose all the time. I wish I did, but I'm
0: getting better at it. You know, it's practice. We're human, right? So you know that's that, that is, I'm, is. I'm
1: part cyborg, but I'm mostly human.
0: <laughs> um, just a couple more questions because uh, sure. we, we, we're we kind of drawing to an end, as so it were. I'm just kind of curious. You've um, you've influenced a lot of people out there, but I'm just wondering who some of your kind of heroes and influences are.
1: That's a great question. I, I spend a lot of time looking for people who I think are showing up in the world in an impressive way or thinking in an impressive way or creating in an impressive way. And sometimes I'm, I, I look at people and I go, there's math, a lot of things I don't really love about this, but I really admire this element. So what can I learn from that? You know, as an aside, I occasionally get asked by people to say, hey, Michael, can you be my mentor? And I typically say no. In part because I'm, I, I'm not sure how to make a relationship like that reciprocal. You know, no. it's too easy for me to sit around, pontificate for an hour, and give them advice. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure if my advice is any good. Probably isn't that good. And secondly, I'm not sure if I'm getting anything from this. There's also just something about look to your mentors as as the the people whose work is out there in the world and go, what is the way they show up and do this work? What does that tell me? Mm. So you know, p- people who've influenced me, um, Peter Block, uh, yeah. a great writer on effectively, what does it mean to show up as an adult in your own life? Bill Bryson, travel writer, uh, his book, a short history of nearly everything. I'm like, I want to be, if I can just be 10% as brilliant and funny and deft with metaphors as Bill Bryson, you know, I'm a very happy man.
0: He's a brilliant
1: writer. isn't Oh, he? He's so great. good. So good. You know, my dad, as a, as a, this is what integrity looks like. This is what gentleness and caring looks like. Brendan Burchard. I, I don't particularly like, so brendan.com. If you want to check out his stuff, um, I don't particularly love his style. Um, but I really look to learn about how he has built a a rabid tribe of people who love him for the work that he does. So, you know, there's stuff there. I'm like, I can definitely learn from that um mm. austin cleon who wrote Steel like an artist i love how he i love his style when i when i was building uh and writing and creating the coaching habit i had Steel like an artist as a this is kind of the look and the feel and the vibe i want this book to have Get So yeah it's like it's a it's a range of people
0: follow a couple of questions if a young maverick came to you not saying michael be my mentor but can you give me some advice What would be the the piece of advice you would give to a a, a maverick or a creative just starting out?
1: Don't trust old people's advice would be (laughs) one piece of advice. Uh, You know, I I can't really answer that question on a a generic level, Um, but I'll I'll tell you somebody else's advice. It's called the Finland bus station advice. Okay. I can't remember who I got this from, so you'll have to Google Finland bus station. I think it's Finland bus station. Okay. It's a metaphor. So the metaphor for the Finland bus station is the the bus routes out of the Finland bus station, the central bus station, there are only three of them that leave the bus station. And so it means that lots of routes for the first five or 10 or 15 kilometers basically follow the same route. And it's yeah. only after 15 kilometers that do the, do the roots start branching off and going their own way. And you know, the metaphor people will be, be picking up right away. I know, which is to say when you're on your journey and you're earlier in the journey rather than later in the journey, there's a degree to which you're, you look around you're like, ah, I'm just doing the same as everybody else. This is not different enough. This is not interesting enough. There's a there, and it's tempting to hop off the bus and go. I'll get I'll get on another bus and maybe that will be my bus. But there's a way of saying if you stay on the bus, you actually get to find your points of differentiation. I mean, I, I saw an interview recently with um, I think his name is Manuel. So the guy who created Hamilton, which is that big musical. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, uh, you know, I knew musical theater was my thing from the age of 15. And that's what I've been doing. And, you know, it's through that, that he's got to where he is now. So, you know, I didn't know what I was doing for years. I still don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> but there's a degree to which, for instance, with our, our focus on coaching at Box of Crayons, we've stayed on that bus a long time. And we have really found the way that we're different, and we found our voice, and we found who we talk to, and we found how we want to grow a business around it. And sticking on the bus has been part of that success, I think.
0: So, final question, and th- this is one for from your bio, which we will be able to read when we when we put this up. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm really curious to know what the uh, what the balloon incident was that got you uh, banned from high school graduation.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it is a it is a story that becomes less interesting when i actually tell you the details it's sound this is the this is the marketer in me so when you when people introduce me that often in the bio that we send people we go michael was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident so it was an incident it was involved balloons it didn't go down well uh I got banned from my high school graduation. It's kind of all there in, in, in the stories. So I'm not <laughs> going to elaborate just because it's, it's, it's truly not as interesting as it might be.
0: Enough said, enough said brilliant stuff. Well, listen, Michael, uh, I'm going to draw this to a close. Thank you so much for your time today. There are so many nuggets in this. I'm going to really enjoy listening back to this. And I know that our listeners are going to love this as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Have a wonderful rest of the week. And thanks for listening guys and Mavericks out there for now bye-bye well we hope you enjoyed listening to that but don't go yet did you get something meaningful out of this episode well the most meaningful thing you can do right now is go and leave a review on itunes because those reviews are what help to keep us here and while you're there please make sure you subscribe and share this episode with friends colleagues and anyone else you think might enjoy it finally are you unleashing your superpowers but well, if so, we'd love to see. So show us on Instagram with the hashtag Mavericks Unlimited and we'll see you over there. Thanks for listening to the Mavericks Unlimited podcast today at mavericksunlimited.com and we'll see you next time.